Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Tonight, I will be reading the opening chapters of Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you story. Chapter 1 My father's family name being Pirrip, and my Christian name Philip. My infant tongue could make of both names nothing longer or more explicit than Pip. 
so I called myself Pip and came to be called Pip. I give Pirip as my father's family name on the authority of his tombstone and my sister, Mrs. Joe Gargery, who married the blacksmith. As I never saw my father or mother, I never saw any likeness of either of them, for their days were long before the days of photographs. My first fancies regarding what they were like were unreasonably derived from their tombstones. The shape of the letters of my father's gave me an odd idea that he was a square, stout, dark man with curly black hair. From the character and turn of the inscription, also Georgiana, wife of the above, I drew a childish conclusion that my mother was freckled and sickly. To five little stone lozenges, each about a foot and a half long, which were arranged in a neat row beside their grave, and were sacred to the memory of five little brothers of mine, who gave up trying to get a living exceedingly early in that universal struggle. I'm indebted for a belief I religiously entertained, that they had all been born on their backs, with their hands in their trouser pockets, and had never taken them out in this state of existence. Ours was a marsh country, down by the river, within, as the river wound, twenty miles of the sea. My first most vivid and broad impression of the identity of things seems to me to have been gained on a memorable raw afternoon towards evening. At such a time I found out for certain that this bleak place overgrown with nettles was the churchyard, and that Philip Pirrip, late of this parish, and also Georgiana, wife of the above, were dead and buried, and that Alexander, Bartholomew, Abraham, Tobias, and Roger, infant children of the aforesaid, were also dead and buried, and that the flat, dark wilderness beyond the churchyard intersected with dikes and mounds and gates, with scattered cattle feeding on it, was the marshes, and that the low leaden line beyond was a river, and that the distant savage lair from which the wind was rushing was the sea, and that the small bundle of shivers growing afraid of it all and beginning to cry was Pip. Hold your noise, cried a terrible voice, as a man started up from among the graves at the side of the church porch. Keep still, you little devil, or I'll cut your throat. A fearful man, all in coarse grey, with a great iron on his leg, a man with no hat, and with broken shoes, and with an old rag tied round his head. A man who had been soaked in water, and smothered in mud, and lamed by stones, and cut by flints, and stung by nettles, and torn by briars, who limped, and shivered, and glared, and growled, and whose teeth chattered in his head as he seized me by the chin. Oh, don't cut my throat, sir, I pleaded in terror. Pray don't do it, sir. Tell us your name, said the man, quick. Pip, sir. Once more, said the man, staring at me. Give it mouth. Pip. Pip, sir. Show us where you live, said the man. Point out the place. I pointed to where our village lay, on the flat inshore among the older trees and pollards, a mile or more from the church. The man, after looking at me for a moment, turned me upside down and emptied my pockets. There was nothing in them but a piece of bread. When the church came to itself, for he was so sudden and strong that he made it go head over heels before me, and I saw the steeple under my feet. When the church came to itself, I say, I was seated on a high tombstone, trembling, while he ate the bread ravenously. You young dog, said the man, licking his lips, what fat cheeks you've got. I believe they were fat, though I was at that time undersized for my years and not strong 
Darn me if I couldn't eat them, said the man, with a threatening shake of his head, and if I haven't half a mind to it. I earnestly expressed my hope that he wouldn't, and held tighter to the tombstone on which he had put me, partly to keep myself upon it, partly to keep myself from crying. Now looky here, said the man, where's your mother? There, sir, said I. He started, made a short run, and stopped, and looked over his shoulder. There, sir, I timidly explained. Also Georgiana, that's my mother. Oh, said he, coming back. And is that your father along or your mother? Yes, sir, said I. Him too, late of this parish. Huh, he muttered then, considering. Who do you live with, supposing you're kindly let to live, which I haven't made my mind about? My sister, sir, Mrs. Joe Gardry, wife of Joe Gardry, blacksmith, sir. Blacksmith, eh? said he, and he looked down at his leg. After darkly looking at his leg and me several times, he came closer to my tombstone, took me by both arms, and tilted me back as far as he could hold me, so that his eyes looked most powerfully down into mine, and mine looked most helplessly up into his. Now looky here, he said, the question being whether you're to be let to live. You know what a file is? Yes, sir. And you know what Whittles is? Yes, sir. After each question, he tilted me over a little more, so as to give me a greater sense of helplessness and danger. You get me a file, he tilted me again, and you get me Whittles, he tilted me again. You bring them both to me, he tilted me again, or I'll have your heart and liver out, he tilted me again. I was dreadfully frightened and so giddy that I clung to him with both hands and said, If you would kindly please to... Let me keep upright, sir. Perhaps I shouldn't be sick, and perhaps I could attend more. He gave me a most tremendous dip and roll so that the church jumped over its own weathercock. Then he held me by the arms in an upright position on the top of the stone and went on in these fearful terms. You bring me, tomorrow morning, early, that file, and then whittles. You bring the lot to me at that old battery over yonder. You do it, and you never dare to say a word or dare to make a sign concerning your having seen such a person as me, or any person somever, and you shall be let to live. You fail, or you go from my words in any particular, no matter how small it is, and your heart and your liver shall be tore out, roasted and ate. Now I ain't alone, as you may think I am. There's a young man hid with me, in comparison with which young man I am an angel. That young man hears the words I speak, that young man has a secret way peculiar to himself of getting at a boy and at his heart and at his liver. It is in vain for a boy to attempt to hide himself from that young man. A boy may lock his door, may be warm in bed, may tuck himself up, may draw the clothes over his head, may think himself comfortable and safe, but that young man will softly creep and creep his way to him and tear him open. I'm keeping that young man from harming you at the present moment with great difficulty. I find it very hard to hold that young man off of your inside. Now what do you say? I said that I would get him the file, I would get him what broken bits of food I could, and I would come to him at the battery early in the morning. Say, Lord strike you dead if you don't, said the man. I said so, and he took me down. Now, he pursued. You remember what you've undertook, and you remember that young man, and you get home. Good night, sir, I faltered, 
much of that, said he, glancing about him over the cold, wet flat. I wish I was a frog or an eel. At the same time, he hugged his shuddering body in both his arms, clasping himself as if to hold himself together, and limped towards the low church wall. As I saw him go, picking his way among the nettles and among the brambles that bound the green mounds, he looked in my young eyes as if he were eluding the hands of the dead people, stretching up cautiously out of their graves to get a twist upon his ankle and pull him in. When he came to the low church wall, he got over it like a man whose legs were numbed and stiff, and then turned round to look for me. When I saw him turning, I set my face towards home and made the best use of my legs. But presently I looked over my shoulder and saw him going on again towards the river, still hugging himself in both arms and picking his way with his sore feet among the great stones dropped into the marshes here and there for stepping places when the rains were heavy or the tide was in. The marshes were just a long, black horizontal line then, as I stopped to look after him, and the river was just another horizontal line, not nearly so broad, nor yet so black, and the sky was just a row of long, angry red lines and dense black lines intermixed. On the edge of the river I could faintly make out the only two black things in all the prospect that seemed to be standing upright. One of these was the beacon by which the sailors stared, like an unhooped cask upon a pole, an ugly thing when you were near it, the other a gibbet, with some chains hanging to it, which had once held a parrot. The man was limping on towards this latter, as if he were the pirate come to life, and come down, and going back to hook himself up again. It gave me a terrible turn when I thought so, and as I saw the cattle lifting their heads to gaze after him, I wondered whether they thought so too. I looked all round for the horrible young man and could see no signs of him. But now I was frightened again, and ran home without stopping. Chapter 2 My sister, Mrs. Jo Gardry, was more than twenty years older than I, and had established a great reputation with herself and the neighbours because she had brought me up by hand. Having at that time to find out for myself what the expression meant, and knowing her to have a hard and heavy hand, and to be much in the habit of laying it upon her husband as well as upon me, I suppose that Jo Gardry and I were both brought up by hand. She was not a good-looking woman, my sister, and I had a general impression that she must have made Joe Gardry marry her by hand. Joe was a fair man, with curls of flaxen hair on each side of his smooth face, and with eyes of such a very undecided blue that they seemed to have somehow got mixed with their own whites. He was a mild, good-natured, sweet-tempered, easy-going, foolish, dare fellow, a sort of Hercules in strength and also in weakness. My sister, Mrs. Joe, with black hair and eyes, had such a prevailing redness of skin that I sometimes used to wonder whether it was possible she washed herself with a nutmeg grater instead of soap. She was tall and bony, and almost always wore a coarse apron fastened over a figure behind with two loops, and having a square impregnable bib in front that was stuck full of pins and needles. She made it a powerful merit in herself, and a strong reproach against Joe that she wore this apron so much, though I really see no reason why she should have worn it at all, or why, if she did wear it at all, she should not have taken it off every day of her life. Joe's forge adjoined our house, 
which was a wooden house, as many of the dwellings in our country were, most of them at that time. When I ran home from the churchyard, the forge was shut up, and Joe was sitting alone in the kitchen. Joe and I being fellow sufferers and having confidences as such, Joe imparted a confidence to me the moment I raised the latch of the door and peeped in at him, opposite to it, sitting in the chimney corner. Mrs. Joe has been out a dozen times looking for you, Pip. She's out now, making it a baker's dozen. Is she? Yes, Pip, said Joe. And what's worse, she's got Tickler with her. At this dismal intelligence, I twisted the only button on my waistcoat round and round and looked in great depression at the fire. Tickler was a wax-ended piece of cane, worn smooth by collision with my tickled frame. She sat down, said Joe, and she got up, and she made a grab at Tickler, and she rampaged out. That's what she did, said Joe, slowly clearing the fire between the lower bars of the poker and looking at it. She rampaged out, Pip. Has she been gone long, Joe? I always treated him as a larger species of child, and as no more than my equal. Well, said Joe, glancing up at the Dutch clock, she's been on the rampage this last spell, about five minutes, Pip. She's a-coming. Get behind the door, old chap, and have the jack towel betwixt you. I took the advice. My sister, Mrs. Joe, throwing the door wide open and finding an obstruction behind it, immediately divined the cause and applied Tickler to its further investigation. She concluded by throwing me, I often served as a connubial missile, at Joe, who, glad to get hold of me on any terms, passed me on into the chimney and quietly fenced me up there with his great leg. Where have you been, ye young monkey? said Mrs. Joe, stamping her foot. Tell me directly what you've been doing to wear me away with fret and fright and wore it. Or I'd have you out of that corner if you was fifty pips and he was five hundred gargeries. I've only been to the churchyard, said I, from my stool, crying and rubbing myself. Churchyard, repeated my sister. If it weren't for me, you'd have been to the churchyard long ago and stayed there. Who brought you up by hand? You did, said I. Why did I do it, I should like to know, exclaimed my sister. I whimpered. I don't know. I don't, said my sister. I'd never do it again, I know that. I may truly say I've never had this apron of mine off since born you were. It's bad enough to be a blacksmith's wife and him a guardry without being your mother. My thoughts strayed from that question as I looked disconsolately at the fire. For the fugitive out on the marshes with the iron leg, the mysterious young man, the file, the food, and the dreadful pledge I was under to commit a larceny on those sheltering premises rose before me in the avenging coals. Ha, said Mrs. Joe, restoring Tickler to his station. Churchyard indeed. You may well say churchyard, you two. One of us, by the by, had not said it at all. You'll drive me to the churchyard betwixt you, one of these days, and oh, a precious pair you'd be without me. As she applied herself to set the tea things, Joe peeped down at me over his leg as if he were mentally casting me and himself up and calculating what kind of pair we practically should make under the grievous circumstances aforementioned. After that, he sat feeling his right side flaxen curls and whisker and following Mrs. Joe about with his blue eyes as his manner always was at squally times. My sister had a trenchant way of cutting our bread and butter for us that never varied. 
First, with her left hand, she jammed the loaf hard and fast against her bib, where it sometimes got a pin into it, and sometimes a needle, which we afterwards got into our mouths. Then she took some butter, not too much, on a knife, and spread it on a loaf, in an apothecary kind of way, as if she were making a plaster, using both sides of the knife with a slapping dexterity, and trimming and moulding the butter off round the crust. Then she gave the knife a final smart wipe on the edge of the plaster, and then sawed a very thick round off the loaf, which she finally, before separating from the loaf, hewed into two halves, of which Joe got one, and I the other. On the present occasion, though I was hungry, I dared not eat my slice. I felt that I must have something in reserve for my dreadful acquaintance, and his ally, the still more dreadful young man. I knew Mrs. Joe's housekeeping to be of the strictest kind, and that my larcenous researches might find nothing available in the safe. Therefore I resolved to put my hunk of bread and butter down the leg of my trousers. The effort of resolution necessary to the achievement of this purpose I found to be quite awful. It was as if I had to make my mind up, to leap from the top of a high house or plunge into a great depth of water. And it was made the more difficult by the unconscious Joe. In our already mentioned Freemasonry as fellow sufferers, and in his good-natured companionship with me, it was our evening habit to compare the way we bit through our slices by silently holding them up to each other's admiration now and then, which stimulated us to new exertions. Tonight, Joe several times invited me, by the display of his fast diminishing slice, to enter upon our usual friendly competition, but he found me each time with my yellow mug of tea on one knee and my untouched bread and butter on the other. At last I desperately considered that the thing I contemplated must be done, and that it had best to be done in the least improbable manner consistent with the circumstances. I took advantage of a moment when Joe had just looked at me and got my bread and butter down my leg. Joe was evidently made uncomfortable by what he supposed to be my loss of appetite, and took a thoughtful bite out of his slice, which he didn't seem to enjoy. He turned it about in his mouth much longer than usual, pondering over a great deal, and after all, gulped it down like a pill. He was about to take another bite, and had just got his head on one side for a good purchase on it, when his eye fell on me, and he saw that my bread and butter was gone. The wonder and consternation with which Joe stopped on the threshold of his bite and stared at me were too evident to escape my sister's observation. What's the matter now, said she smartly, as she put down her cup. I say you know, muttered Joe, shaking his head at me in a very serious remonstrance. Pip, old chap, you'll do yourself a mischief. It'll stick somewhere. You can't have chawed it, Pip. What's the matter now, repeated my sister more sharply than before. If you can cough any trifle on it, Pip, I'd recommend you do it, said Joe, all aghast. Manners is manners, but still your elf's your elf. By this time, my sister was quite desperate, so she pounced on Joe, and taking him by the two whiskers, knocked his head for a little while against the wall behind him, while I sat in the corner looking guiltily on. Now perhaps you'll mention what's the matter, said my sister out of breath, you staring great stuck pig. Joe looked at her in a helpless way, then took a helpless bite, and looked at me again. You know, Pip, said Joe solemnly with his last bite in his cheek, and speaking in a confidential voice as if we two were quite alone. You and me is always friends, and I'd be the last to tell upon you, any time. But such a 
He moved his chair and looked about the floor between us, and then again at me. Such a most uncommon bolt as that. Been bolting his food, has he? cried my sister. You know, old chap, said Joe, looking at me, and not at Mrs. Joe, with his bite still in his cheek. I bolted myself, when I was your age, frequent. And as a boy, I've been among a many bolters. But I never saw your bolting equal yet, Pip, and it's a mercy you ain't bolted dead. My sister made a dive at me and fished me up by the hair, saying nothing more than the awful words, You come along and be dosed. Some medical beast had revived tar water in those days as a fine medicine, and Mrs. Joe always kept a supply of it in the cupboard, having a belief in its virtues correspondent to its nastiness. At the best of times, so much of this elixir was administered to me as a choice restorative that I was conscious of going about smelling like a new fence. On this particular evening, the urgency of my case demanded a pint of this mixture, which was poured down my throat for my greater comfort, while Mrs. Joe held my head under her arm as a boot would be held in a bootjack. Joe got off with half a pint, but was made to swallow that, much to his disturbance as he sat down slowly munching and meditating before the fire, because he had had a turn. Judging from myself, I should say he certainly had a turn afterwards, if he had had none before. Conscience is a dreadful thing when it accuses man or boy, but when in the case of a boy, that secret burden cooperates with another secret burden down the leg of his trousers, it is, as I can testify, a great punishment. The guilty knowledge that I was going to rob Mrs. Joe, I never thought I was going to rob Joe, for I never thought of any of the housekeeping property as his, united to the necessity of always keeping one hand on my bread and butter as I sat, or when I was ordered about the kitchen on any small errand, almost drove me out of my mind. Then, as the marsh winds made the fire glow and flare, I thought I heard the voice outside of the man with the iron on his leg who had sworn me to secrecy, declaring that he couldn't and wouldn't starve until tomorrow, but must be fed now. At other times I thought, what if the young man who was with so much difficulty restrained from embrewing his hands in me should yield to a constitutional impatience, or should mistake the time, or should think himself accredited to my heart and liver tonight? instead of tomorrow. If ever anybody's hair stood on end with terror, mine must have done so then. But perhaps nobody's ever did. It was Christmas Eve and I had to stir the pudding for next day with a copper stick from seven to eight by the Dutch clock. I tried it with a load upon my leg and that made me think afresh of the man with the load on his leg and found the tendency of exercise to bring the bread and butter out at my ankle quite unmanageable. Happily, I slipped away and deposited that part of my conscience in my garret bedroom. Hark, said I, when I had done my stirring and was taking a final warm in the chimney corner before being sent up to bed. Was that great guns, Joe? Ah, said Joe, that's another convict off. What does that mean, Joe, said I. Mrs. Joe, who always took explanations upon herself, said snappishly, escaped, escaped, administering the definition like tar water. While Mrs. Joe sat with her head bending over her needlework, I put my mouth into the forms of saying to Joe, What's a convict? Joe put his mouth into the forms of returning such a highly elaborate answer that I could make out nothing of it but the single word, Pip. There was a convict off last night, said Joe aloud, after sunset gun, and they fired warning of him, and now it appears they're firing warning of another. 
Who's firing? said I. Drat that boy, interposed my sister, frowning at me over her work. What a questioner he is. Ask no questions and you'll be told no lies. It was not very polite to herself, I thought, to imply that I should be told lies by her even if I did ask questions. But she never was polite, unless there was company. At this point, Joe greatly augmented my curiosity by taking the utmost pains to open his mouth very wide and to put in it the form of a word that looked to me like sulks. Therefore, I naturally pointed to Mrs. Joe and put my mouth into the form of saying her, but Joe wouldn't hear that at all, and again opened his mouth very wide and shook the form of a most emphatic word out of it. But I could make nothing of the word. Mrs. Joe, said I, as a last resort, I should like to know, if you wouldn't much mind, where the firing comes from. Lord bless the boy, exclaimed my sister, as if she didn't quite mean that, but rather the contrary. From the hulks. Oh, said I, looking at Joe, hulks. Joe gave a reproachful cough, as much as to say, well, I told you so. And please, what's hulks, said I. That's the way with this boy, exclaimed my sister, pointing me out with her needle and thread and shaking her head at me. Answer him one question and he'll ask you a dozen directly. Hulks are prison ships right across the meshes. We always use that name for marshes in our country. I wonder who's put into prison ships and why they're put there, said I, in a general way and with quiet desperation. It was too much for Mrs. Joe, who immediately rose. I'll tell you what, young fellow, said she. I didn't bring you up by hand to badger people's lives out. It would be blame to me and not praise if I had. People are put in the hulks because they murder and because they rob and forge and do all sorts of bad. And they always begin by asking questions. Now you get along to bed. I was never allowed a candle to light me to bed. And as I went upstairs in the dark, with my head tingling, from Mrs. Joe's thimble having played the tambourine upon it to accompany her last words, I felt fearfully sensible of the great convenience that the hulks were handy for me. I was clearly on my way there. I had begun by asking questions, and I was going to rob Mrs. Joe. Since that time, which is far enough away now, I have often thought that few people know what secrecy there is in the young under terror. No matter how unreasonable the terror, so that it be terror, I was in mortal terror of the young man who wanted my heart and liver. I was in mortal terror of my interlocutor with the iron leg. I was in mortal terror of myself from whom an awful promise had been extracted. I had no hope of deliverance through my all-powerful sister, who repulsed me at every turn. I am afraid to think of what I might have done on requirement in the secrecy of my terror. If I slept at all that night, it was only to imagine myself drifting down the river on a strong spring tide to the hulks, a ghostly pirate calling out to me through a speaking trumpet as I passed the gibbet station, that I had better come ashore and be hanged there at once and not put it off. I was afraid to sleep, even if I had been inclined, for I knew that at the first faint dawn of morning I must rob the pantry. There was no doing it in the night, for there was no getting a light by easy friction then. To have got one, I must have struck it out of flint and steel and have made a noise like the very pirate himself rattling his chains. As soon as the great black velvet pall outside my window was shot with grey, I got up and went downstairs, 
every board upon the way and every crack and every board calling after me, Stop, thief, and get up, Mrs. Joe. In the pantry, which was far more abundantly supplied than usual owing to the season, I was very much alarmed by a hare hanging up by the heels, whom I rather thought I caught when my back was half-turned, winking. I had no time for verification, no time for selection, no time for anything, for I had no time to spare. I stole some bread, some rind of cheese, about half a jar of mincemeat, which I tied up in my pocket handkerchief with my night's slice, some brandy from a stone bottle, which I decanted into a glass bottle I'd secretly used for making that intoxicating fluid, Spanish liquor water, up in my room, diluting the stone bottle from a jug in the kitchen cupboard, a meat bone with a very little on it, and a beautiful, round, compact pork pie. I was nearly going away without the pie, but I was tempted to mount upon a shelf to look what it was that was put away so carefully in a covered earthenware dish in a corner, and I found it was the pie, and I took it, in the hope that it was not intended for early use and would not be missed for some time. There was a door in the kitchen communicating with the forge. I unlocked and unbolted that door, and got a file from among Joe's tools. Then I put the fastenings as I had found them, opened the door which I had entered when I ran home last night, shut it, and ran for the misty marshes. Chapter 3 It was a rimy morning and very damp. I had seen the damp lying on the side of my little window, as if some goblin had been crying there all night and using the window for a pocket handkerchief. Now I saw the damp lying on the bare hedges and spare grass, like a coarser sort of spider's web, hanging itself from twig to twig and blade to blade. On every rail and gate, wet lay clammy, and the marsh mist was so thick that the wooden finger on the post directing people to our village, a direction which they never accepted, for they never came there, was invisible to me until I was quite close under it. Then, as I looked up at it, while it dripped, it seemed to my oppressed conscience like a phantom devoting me to the hulks. The mist was heavier yet when I got out upon the marshes, so that instead of my running at everything, everything seemed to run at me. This was very disagreeable to a guilty mind. The gates and dikes and banks came bursting at me through the mist, as if they cried as plainly as could be. A boy with somebody else's pork pie, stop him. The cattle came upon me with like suddenness, staring out of their eyes and steaming out of their nostrils. Hello, young thief. One black ox with a cravat on, who even had, to my awakened conscience, something of a clerical air, fixed me so obstinately with his eyes, and moved his blunt head round in such an accusatory manner as I moved round, that I blubbered out to him. I couldn't help it, sir. It wasn't for myself I took it. Upon which he put down his head, blew a cloud of smoke out of his nose, and vanished with a kick up of his hind legs and a flourish of his tail. All this time I was getting on towards the river, but however fast I went, I couldn't warm my feet to which the damp cold seemed riveted, as the iron was riveted to the leg of the man I was running to meet. I knew my way to the battery pretty straight, for I had been down there on a Sunday with Joe, and Joe, sitting on an old gun, had told me that when I was prentice to him, regularly bound, we would have had such larks there. However, in the confusion of the mist, I found myself at last too far to the right, and consequently had to try back along the riverside, 
on the bank of loose stones above the mud and the stakes that staked the tide out. Making my way along here with all dispatch, I had just crossed a ditch which I knew to be very near the battery, and had just scrambled up the mound beyond the ditch when I saw the man sitting before me. His back was towards me, and he had his arms folded and was nodding forward, heavy with sleep. I thought he would be more glad if I came upon him with his breakfast in that unexpected manner. So I went forward softly and touched him on the shoulder. He instantly jumped up, and it was not the same man, but another man. And yet this man was dressed in coarse grey too, and had a great iron on his leg and was lame and hoarse and cold, and was everything that the other man was, except that he had not the same face and had a flat, broad-brimmed, low-crowned felt hat on. All this I saw in a moment, for I had only a moment to see it in. He swore an oath at me, made a hit at me. It was a round, weak blow that missed me and almost knocked himself down, for it made him stumble. And then he ran into the mist, stumbling twice as he went, and I lost him. It's the young man, I thought, feeling my heart shoot as I identified him. I dare say I should have felt a pain in my liver too if I'd known where it was. I was soon at the battery after that, and there was the right man hugging himself and limping to and fro, as if he had never all night left off hugging and limping, waiting for me. He was awfully cold, to be sure. I half expected to see him drop down before my face and die of deadly cold. His eyes looked so awfully hungry, too, that when I handed him the file and he laid it down on the grass, it occurred to me he would have tried to eat it if he had not seen my bundle. He did not turn me upside down this time to get at what I had, but left me right side upwards while I opened the bundle and emptied my pockets. What's in the bottle, boy? said he. Brandy, said I. He was already handing mince meat down his throat in the most curious manner, more like a man who was putting it away somewhere in a violent hurry than a man who was eating it. But he left off to take some of the liquor. He shivered all the while so violently that it was quite as much as he could do to keep the neck of the bottle between his teeth without biting it off. I think you have got the ague, said I. I'm much of your opinion, boy, said he. It's bad about here, I told him. You've been lying out on the meshes and they're dreadful aguish. Rheumatic, too. I'll eat my breakfast afore they're the death of me, said he. I'd do that if I was going to be strung up to that there gallows as there is over there directly afterwards. I'll beat the shivers so far, I'll bet you. He was gobbling mincemeat meat bone, bread, cheese, and pork pie all at once, staring distrustfully while he did so at the mist all around us, and often stopping, even stopping his jaws to listen. Some real or fancied sound, some clink upon the river or breathing of beast upon the marsh, now gave him a start, and he said suddenly, You're not a deceiving imp. You brought no one with you. No, sir, no. Nor give no one the office to follow you? No. Well, said he, I believe you. You'd be but a fierce young hound indeed, if at your time of life you could help to hunt a wretched wormit, hunted as near death and dunghill as this poor wretched wormit is. Something clicked in his throat, as if he had works in him like a clock and was going to strike, and he smeared his ragged, rough sleeve over his eyes. Pitying his desolation and watching him as he gradually settled down upon the pie, I made bold to say, I'm glad you enjoy it. Did you speak? 
I said I was glad you enjoyed it. Thank you, my boy, I do. I had often watched a large dog of ours eating his food, and I now noticed a decided similarity between the dog's way of eating and the man's. The man took strong, sharp, sudden bites, just like the dog. He swallowed, or rather snapped up, every mouthful, too soon and too fast, and he looked sideways here and there while he ate, as if he thought there was a danger in every direction of somebody's coming to take the pie away. He was altogether too unsettled in his mind over it to appreciate it comfortably, I thought, or to have anybody to dine with him without making a chop with his jaws at the visitor. In all of which particulars, he was very like the dog. I'm afraid you won't leave any of it for him, said I timidly, after a silence during which I had hesitated as to the politeness of making the remark. There's no more to be got where that came from. It was the certainty of this fact that impelled me to offer the hint. Leave any for him? Who's him? said my friend, stopping in his crunching of pie crust. The young man that you spoke of. Hid with you. Oh, ah, he returned with something like a gruff laugh. Him? Yes, yes. He don't want no whittles. I thought he looked as if he did, said I. The man stopped eating and regarded me with the keenest scrutiny and the greatest surprise. Looked? When? Just now. Where? Yonder, said I, pointing. Over there, where I found him nodding asleep and thought it was you. He held me by the collar and stared at me so that I began to think his first idea about cutting my throat had revived. Dressed like you, you know, only with a hat, I explained, trembling. And I was very anxious to put this delicately. And with the same reason for wanting to borrow a file. Didn't you hear the cannon last night? Then there was firing, he said to himself. I wonder you shouldn't have been sure of that, I returned, for we heard it up at home, and that's further away, and we were shut in besides. Why see now, said he, when a man's alone in these flats with a light head and a light stomach, perishing of cold and want, he hears nothing all night but guns firing and voices calling. Hears? He sees the soldiers with their red coats lighted up by the torches carried afore, closing in round him. Hears his number called. Hears himself challenged. Hears the rattle of the muskets. Hears the orders. Make ready. Present. Cover him steady, men. And is laid hands on, and there's nothing. Why, if I see one pursuing party last night, coming up in order, damn him with their tramp, tramp, I see a hundred. And as to firing, why, I see the mist shake with the cannon, after it was broad day. But this man, he had said all the rest as if he had forgotten my being there. Did you notice anything in him? He had a badly bruised face, said I, recalling what I hardly knew I knew. Not here, exclaimed the man striking his left cheek mercilessly with the flat of his hand. Yes, there. Where is he? He crammed what little food was left into the breast of his grey jacket. Show me the way he went. I'll pull him down like a bloodhound. Curse this iron on my sore leg. Give us hold of the file, boy. I indicated in what direction the mist had shrouded the other man, and he looked up at it for an instant. But he was down on the rank, wet grass, filing at his iron like a madman not minding me or minding his own leg, which had an old chafe upon it and was bloody, but which he handled as roughly as if it had no more feeling in it than the file. I was very much afraid of him again, now that he had worked himself into this fierce hurry, and I was likewise very much afraid of keeping away from home any longer. I told him I must go, but he took no notice. 
so I thought the best thing I could do was to slip off. The last I saw of him, his head was bent over his knee, and he was working hard at his fetter, muttering impatient imprecations at it and his leg. The last I heard of him, I stopped in the mist to listen, and the file was still going. Good night. <laughs>